Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we are back on another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined as I am every Thursday on this very program. It's Mr. John Taylor of Fangraphs.com. John, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> As I said that before we started recording, I don't know if you can hear the Khaleesi the dog is literally hitting me in the chest right now <laughs> trying to record. This is great. Uh, this is great. She's just really excited about the Braves because, John, the Braves went up 1-0 last night. Um, one of the cooler things about these playoff baseball games is that... <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. The, Khaleesi, you're not a part of the show. Khaleesi's not a part of the show. Um, maybe she knows Fisher's around. Um, but what do you what do you make of the Braves taking Game One in last night's affair, sir? Uh, well, you always want to win Game One if you can. That's Definitely. true. Pretty yeah, good record. The, the hard hitting analysis here, certainly, especially with what happened with Charlie Morton, uh, which I imagine we'll get to more mm-hmm. specifically. The Braves pretty much had to win Game One. They. Especially, and on top of that, too, the fact that they are the road team. Anytime you can steal uh, a win on the road is always a good thing. You know, you're now in a position where you can, you know, even if you do lose tonight or if you do lose game two, you can still uh, finish the series at home if possible. And if nothing else, the one nothing advantage means that you are now not in the position of going down two nothing, which is, if not quite a death sentence, and certainly definitely not the place you want to be. So that they have that, and they have that advantage going forward for them. The second fact that it was a relatively easy game one, well, I guess easy, like I said, relatively easy. Mm. It was, for all intents and purposes, a blowout for the majority of the game, a a five-run lead that went down to four runs and stayed there, and, you know, that was never really in doubt except for maybe one or two different times over the course of the last five or six innings. So it was relatively stress-free, despite the fact that they lost Morton and despite the fact that they had to use all of their good relievers, including A.J. Minter for... uh, almost three full innings to get it done. But hey, you win you win the game in front of you and you worry about the game tomorrow tomorrow. And at least the Braves are now in that position where they have seemingly less anxiety, I think, than the Astros do. And I think primarily because for the Astros, game one was their best starter on the mound at home. Uh, and certainly, you know, they have to face Atlanta's best starter too, but that was their best pitching matchup, I think. Uh, depending how you feel going forward about Jose Urquidy and Luis Garcia and whatever it is they do in game four, but that was definitely the pitcher the Braves had to beat, so to speak, because the road from here, from games two through four, is going to be a lot easier, theoretically, at least pitching-wise, than it was in game one, although they really beat the crap out of Framber Valdez. And that's important, too, is that, you know, Valdez does come back. People pointed out before the game, and, and it, it's worth noting, that that was not a good matchup for Houston, both in terms of having a left-handed starter against a lot of right-handed power hitters and having a guy who succeeds by getting ground balls against a team that never, ever hits them. So already a bad matchup in the first place certainly not uh, a good start for Valdez who pitched pretty terribly and now the open question is you know for Houston okay our number one guy our default number one guy really didn't do the job and for as much as we know what he's capable of doing and how quickly that switch can be flipped as you saw in the in the ALCS it's no guarantee that the next time Valdez comes out he's going to do any better and again this is a lineup that seems particularly well suited to hitting him now the concern for them has to be, what do we do over the next three games just to get back to a point where we can use Framber Valdez again? So 
Yeah, very, very big for Atlanta, obviously, to get that series lead. Very big for them to hit hard the the best starter they will probably face this entire series. Very good for them to be able to get that win without having to nuke all the best parts of their bullpen. Unlikely we see A.J. Minter in Game 2 except for an absolute emergency, but, you know, Matzik, Luke Jackson, Will Smith, uh, those, those guys should be free to, to contribute at least an inning apiece. So... Definitely the momentum and the odds in, in Atlanta's favor, but boy, that that Morton injury is is not going to be a fun one for them to try to replace. Yeah, it seems like there's now more initiative, and we'll see tonight because this is going to go up tomorrow, um, and we'll see how Game Two ultimately unfolds here with Freed on the mound. But it does seem like the calculus for the Braves has changed, where they need to win this series as fast as humanly possible where it's like the longer this goes it now seems more likely that this is this is in the astros favor if this goes to six or seven games right i would agree if only because one you don't have more than anymore and for as much as he was only ever going to make one more start in the series and that would have been game five well game five would have been uh, his scheduled start there's a chance obviously the Braves could have asked him to start Game Four on short rest if they were down two to one, or Game Seven if it were a winner-take-all elimination game. And at the very least, he would have been available theoretically as an emergency reliever in those games. And as we all have seen in the past, uh, World Series reliever Charlie Morton is a force of nature. So yeah, I would agree. The longer this goes, the worse it is for Atlanta. They were already at a starter. They were already kind of scrambling to get more than three starters to the series. And I and I don't think Ian Anderson, based on the way he's pitched and the way Brian Snitker has has managed him is going to be a guy who's going to go through the lineup more than twice. So length was going to be important. And important, they had a guy who they felt clearly felt comfortable letting him go five or six innings a turn, maybe seven if everything turned out all right. Definitely going to have to lean on the bullpen more. And also, that is also going to make it that much harder if the series does go along, because especially with that three-game stretch in Atlanta, uh, assuming that they have to play all three games in Atlanta, you're not going to, Bryce Sicker's not going to be able to do things like use A.J. Minter to get six to eight outs. He's not going to be able to ask Tyler Massick for two innings every night. He's probably gonna try to ask Tyler Matzik for two innings every night, but he, you know, regardless. Yes, this is this is a problem for the Braves if the series goes long. They were already kind of up against it when it came to a fourth starter. I figured that that was probably going to be a Kyle Wright, Drew Smiley uh, piggyback experiment, depending on how they wanted to try to force Houston to orient its lineup, if at all, with the lefty versus the righty. Now you're now you're in a position where, you know, when it comes to Game Four, and obviously there will have to be a Game Four. Assuming Atlanta is not up three games to none and can just kind of do whatever to try to close it out, do you go with Smiley in game four and save right for game five? Do you flip that? Do you try to use one of them for game five? Do you use both of them for game four and bullpen game five, knowing that that's going to be the third game in a row uh, if you do have to play it? I don't know. I'm really glad I'm not Brian Snicker and don't have to figure this out. But yeah, the, the it, it, it is a big loss, even if Morton only was going to make one more start. And, and I totally agree. The longer the series goes, it would seem like the advantage would be Houston's, particularly if the long, the long if the series does go longer, they're going to get multiple looks at these Atlanta relievers. And I think as we've seen in postseasons past, you know, some of the benefit of being able to go to these relievers as often as possible does get a little mitigated by the fact that batters very clearly get more comfortable and more, or at least theoretically, get more comfortable and more familiar with them the more they see them and the more, and especially because all you know all relievers are essentially failed starters, which means the great majority of relievers are two pitch pitchers who do not have a ton of stamina left at this point. So going very bullpen heavy in a seven-game series, you know, the Braves managed to make it work against the Dodgers. But the flip side of that is look what that did to the Dodgers, who barely even got to game six pitching-wise and then just had nothing left for that one. Yeah. 
And I do wonder, because um, <laughs> Luke just came back, does that mean with, with Luke rising, one of the other relievers uh, starts to implode? But um, that was that was great to see because, I mean, I know I'm not alone in being very nervous and was very nervous about uh, him entering the game when he did. But uh, what we will not forget, John, is that uh, that, that that slide by Guriel into second was just uh, phenomenal, top-notch. Yeah, that, that was rough. He very clearly... One, he thought that ball was gone when he hit it, and so he clearly didn't get out of the box full speed. Two, he only noticed, I think, that that ball had stayed in play once he reached first base. You could tell, I don't know if Fox ever showed a replay of, of, of him running from home to second, which I, I would have loved to see. Him. I mean, I think just generally Fox's production for baseball games is really bad, but, you know, regardless. I, it did look to me like at some point he kind of stopped around first and then realized this ball is still in play. I can turn this into a double and tried to pick it back up. And that's probably what led to his uh, Ian Kinsler-esque face first slide where it, I think he just lost his balance, stumbled a bit, and then just couldn't uh, recover his uh, equilibrium in time. But yeah, it's the Astros shot themselves in the foot a lot last night. They, they did not play well. Um some of that, I think, was just the Braves just punched them really hard first. And, you know, once you're down 5 nothing basically after three innings, it, it's kind of hard to, to, to put up a rally against that. But certainly last night was probably – if I don't think it's the worst – there's really not the worst game the Astros have played this postseason. Games 2 and 3 of the ALCS were far, far worse in terms of, of their overall play. But, yeah, it's I, – I made a joke to a friend of mine once once Valdez came out in the third and once Morton followed that this is probably not going to – this is probably not a series that's going to be very aesthetically pleasing. These are, mm. these are two teams that are just kind of scrapping and fighting in that very kind of desperate sense. And this isn't a series like, say, the last time Houston was in the World Series where he had Garrett Cole against Max Scherzer, Zach Greinke against Steven Strasburg. You know, it wasn't these crazy pitching matchups and, and you know, and these – and anything like that, I think the, the pitching, especially in this series, is going to be pretty much a battle of attrition. It, it's who's the last, who has the last functional pitching staff still standing? Because as as we saw, I mean, Atlanta's lineup is very good. Houston's lineup is obviously very good. There are not a whole lot of places in either lineup for pitchers kind of to take a break. In particular, Houston's lineup goes seven deep, which is just terrifying. So yeah, I, I think this is this isn't. I don't think this is necessarily going to be a, a series where there are a ton of runs scored. But I don't think this is going to be a series where we're going to where we're going to see a lot of consistent or even really great pitching beyond I think the the relievers that we see. I think it's as with every other game this postseason, we're going to see a lot of relievers and we're going to see I think a lot of kind of I, I don't I don't foresee the pace for this one being particularly fun. And I know that was it feels weird complaining about the time of baseball because there's a lot of baked in that can you know you can't really change, but. Boy, last night's game was an absolute slog. And I understand that there were logistical reasons for that. I understand that anytime you have a, a game where two starters both leave, where both starters both leave in the third inning, you know, the pace is not going to improve from there because you're just going to have to use your bullpen a lot. But boy, that game just dragged. And I am a little worried that in a series where there isn't, where there really aren't consistent starters left, this one, I think Morton is probably the most consistent, or at least the most dependable and durable guy left, you know, you're it's unlikely we're going to be seeing too many great pitching performances, at least from starters in this series, I think. Yeah. Well, put on your clairvoyant hat, John. What happened tonight for the folks who are listening to this on Thursday morning on their commute in? What what happened tonight? I think the Astros win. I have a hard time seeing them go down 0-2. Obviously, the big issue here is going to be how many outs can they get from Jose Urquidy before they have to turn to the bullpen. 
Uh, if there's good news for Houston last night, it's that they didn't really have to uh, use any of the good parts of their bullpen, or at least the the parts that they wanted to save, aka Ryan Presley and Kendall Graveman in particular, both of whom should be available to get, I imagine, anywhere from six to nine outs between the, th- or at least six to nine outs between the two of them. So as long as Urquidy can get through the lineup twice in decent shape, I think Houston will be in good shape too. The obvious X factor there is Freed, who has been terrific, with the exception of his start against the Dodgers. What is what was up with that? I can't say for sure. You know, I, I haven't followed him enough or watched him enough pitch to know if that was just a bad outing or you know something to be concerned about. Uh, the interesting thing I'll be looking to, or the thing I'll be looking to see, and this is something that I found kind of curious about the way Snicker has handled Freed, is he really hasn't let him go long. I think five six innings is about the max he's really been comfortable with. Despite the fact that, you know, especially now at this point, this is definitely a series where if you can somehow get six to seven full innings out of Freed and, you know, six to seven good innings, that's a huge, huge advantage for to give that bullpen that much rest coupled with the off day heading into game three. But I, for whatever reason, or not for whatever reason, I, I can see Snicker being cautious with Freed, though, especially against the lineup that is, one, this good, and two, has this many good right-handed power hitters. Uh, I imagine that Freed will probably be done after five maximum. So it, it really is going to, re- I think it really is, again, going to rest on, you know, how much can Atlanta get out of that Matzik? And again, I, I have to imagine Minter's not available tonight. So it'll depend on how much they can, how much good they can get out of Matzik, Jackson, and Smith. And conversely, how much good Houston can get out of not just Presley and Graveman, but I imagine Christian Javier is also going to play a really big role in game two because if Rikidi is can't get through line up a second time I imagine Javier is probably going to be asked to get to do what Jake Odorizzi did last night and or in game one rather and get at least two or three innings of relief so that you know the bullpen doesn't have to burn itself to ground especially considering that you know game four is almost certainly going to be a bullpen game even if Zach Greinke is the nominal starter because I, I just don't see him at this stage in his career he doesn't seem like someone who's really good to do a lineup more than once at this point John I've got some bad news Bing bong, you're wrong. The Braves went up 2-0. Sorry. I, I hate to inform you, but the Braves went up 2-0 last okay, night. Okay, what, 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 is is, what is this bing bong thing? Have you not watched the Knicks fan video? No, I don't. No, I don't. I, are, you, are you talking about the one from opening night? Yes, where they are all, like, okay, all these I, different fans. Yeah, I, okay, mm-hmm. I, I have, for some reason, forgotten about the bing bong thing. I've seen people tweeting about it. It cracks me up every time I see Knicks it. Fans. I ignore Knicks fans online for the most part because mm-hmm. they're... They're lab rats on cocaine. They're they're <laughs> being fed stimuli that they don't understand and can't control, mm. and so all they're just letting the base impulse fly out, despite the fact that they have they have no control over any part of the situation. And I'm not saying that in a way to be like, oh, stupid Knicks fans, don't be happy. No, fine, Knicks fans be happy. I just find the degree to which Knicks fans celebrate to be just it is like someone injected them with pharmaceutical cocaine. <laughs> Like, they beat the Sixers last night, and I was genuinely worried a small chunk of Midtown was going to be burned down mm. after game, like, five or whatever of the season. It just means so, more. I mean, I know, this, I know this is not your NBA podcast episode, but yeah, Knicks, Knicks fans, number one, Knicks fans are just permanently on one. Number two, I am already looking forward to the 1997 or whatever re- redux that will be a Bulls-Knicks Eastern Conference Finals where every game is legally mandated to end with a final score where neither team breaks 90 points and where Spike Lee spends the entire time just groaning in his seat while, while like, 
I don't know. They, they got to bring like Pat Riley back for it somehow. I know he was never a Knicks or Bulls head coach, but they got to bring him there just to taunt Spike. I think. Either way, I, I'm a little, I'm a little out of, I'm a little afield for my, for my expertise here. You can probably tell. Hey, there, there it is. Um, something that's in your expertise, John, the the yes. San Francisco Giants and what they do with the potential Marcus Simeon deal, because that's the rumor. He wants to go back to the West Coast. Man, this is tough because the Blue Jays have done everything right. I think they're just, if he's back and they just add a few more starting pitching, if they are ready to go in 2023 when there's a season again, that they're they're right there. The The Blue Jays are close. And this would just be such a devastating blow because I don't know who they could actually add that would replace him. It's kind of like when the Jazz were faced with this thing with Mike Conley where it's like yeah if Mike Conley leaves like there's no one else in the market that you can use so you have to give him this money even if you don't think he's worth this because you can't find anybody even close so it's just complicated but Simeon just being as good as he was for Toronto this year um feels very Kawhi like right when he like they they did everything right in Canada they won a title they didn't win a title with Toronto yet but you know um he's been great and they've spent they have this awesome young core uh, great front office. They're doing everything right. Uh, baseball's back in Toronto. Great fan base, but the dude doesn't want to live in uh, in Canada, in Toronto. So then, what do you what do you do here with him still being in the prime of his career? And if he wants to go back to California, then what really can you do? Um, wh- how do you think this ends? And do you think Blue Jays fans should be nervous? I mean, nervous, sure, because like you said, Semyon prefers the West Coast. It's you know, it's where his professional career pretty much started. I know he's with Chicago before Oakland, but he never really played for Chicago. Um, and there's also the fact that you know, I'm assuming that the Blue Jays stick with Bo Bichette at shortstop, and that they don't. Die he was also born in San Francisco, we should say. Okay, so that that all that makes it even more the case. So, and, and assuming, as I was saying, assuming that the Blue Jays stick with Bo Bichette at shortstop and continue trying uh, Kevin Biggio at third base, although that's obviously an open question as to what they want to do there, the market for second baseman is not great. Semyon, I mean, Semyon is a shortstop, and I assume that he will market himself as a shortstop. And there are guys on the list of available shortstops, in particular Javi Baez, who you can very easily you know, plug in at second base and go with it. But if you're looking for guys who are primarily second baseman, the next best name in the free in the free agent market after Semyon, or at least the guys you would play at second base, is Jurickson Profar. And he really is more of a utility guy at this point. Similarly with Chris Taylor, who certainly can handle second base, but I don't think it's someone you want playing regularly at second base. And the truth is most of Chris Taylor's value comes not from just sticking him at second base for 162 games, but for the fact he can play second or third or the outfield. And, you know, he, he's basically... Uh, basically the same function that Kike Hernandez uh, plays for the Red Sox and used to play for the Dodgers. So I, I think they're, you know, if you're the, especially if you're the Blue Jays, given to that you traded away Austin Martin uh, in order to get Jose Barrios and you now have that much less middle infield depth in your system. Yeah, it'd be a tough loss for, for them to lose Semyon. And I'm not sure what they would do because they also have a lot of other questions they need to figure out payroll-wise. They need to figure out if they want to bring back Robbie Ray. They presume they probably should add a starter beyond that. Um, there is other work they need to do. They could consider exploring potential long-term extensions for, at the very least, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Maybe you know put the feelers out with Teoscar Hernandez's camp, with Bachet's camp, uh, with all the other <clears throat> excuse me good young hitters that they have. So yeah, I think it would be obviously very tough for Toronto to replace him, and not just you know replace him in the field, but also atop the lineup. You know they don't really have. I think a guy who fits in neatly up there, Semyon was far and away their best uh, on-base guy. 
the other flip side of that is he would make perfect sense for the Giants. I know they have Marco Luciano coming up through the system as their shortstop of the future and that they still have Brandon Crawford there in place. But Semyon, I think, would be a very good option at second base for them where, you know, they got good work out of Donovan Solano and a few other guys, but Semyon is obviously a and, – and sorry, Donovan Solano and Tommy Lestella, but Semyon obviously makes that a little easier. He is a plug-and-play guy that you never have to worry about. He is your full-time starter at second base. He can handle shortstop if Crawford goes down or is struggling. You know, I, I think that makes a lot of sense for them, especially because they, I think, you know, have, not having fully digested what their payroll looks like for next year, really haven't thought, not having thought all that much about kind of what the Giants are going to or want to look like next year. They seem like a team that probably does not have that much they need to do this offseason, given that they're coming off 106 wins and have a roster that's pretty strong. I think, you know, the difference for the Giants next year is going to be whether or not the old guys keep performing. I don't think it's going to... Well, that's what I was going to say, is I think that they actually might have a lot of work to do to ensure that this does keep going. I don't think they should sit on their laurels whatsoever. Oh, no, and I I agree with that. They should, but better said, I, I think the other issue, too, is where they... It's kind of like, do they have the roster flexibility to make that work? You know, they're not going to go out and they're in good options anyway, but they're not going to go out and get a new catcher. You know, they're not going to go out and get a new shortstop. They're not, they're probably not going to go out and look at the third base market and instead, you know, live with Evan Longoria. I mean, the big question, I suppose, is whether or not they want to do something at first base now that uh, Brandon Belt is a free agent, whether or not they want to bring him back, whether or not they want to go with someone younger, whether or not they want to make a trade there. Um, that is obviously TBD, but at the very least, I think San Francisco has more stability on the roster overall than Toronto does, and I think has a somewhat higher locked-in floor. Uh, I do think, obviously, Semyon would go a long way to improving that and improving the, the ceiling for that team, which is also going to be hugely important for them because, like you said, you know you don't want to rest in your laurel, especially when the competition in your division is the Dodgers, and a Padres team that definitely should be better um at the very least if they are healthier should be better next year so i think it would be a really smart move for san francisco i think it's a tough choice for toronto as to who or what you want to prioritize i would imagine that semi is probably high up on the list because like i said there aren't a great there aren't too many great intern or external options for second base and given the way biggio played this season i don't know how comfortable the blue jays feel just giving him one of second or third and saying well that'll work itself out so we shall see, but uh, assuming he doesn't go back to Toronto, I think, yeah, San Francisco makes a ton of sense for Semyon. Ozzie Guillen interviewed for the San Diego Padres managerial position. Do you want to see Ozzie managing the Padres and would it make sense to you? Uh, does it make sense? Absolutely not. Ozzie's crazy. <laughs> like, whatever benefit he brings in terms of clubhouse, whatever, or getting along with with the latin players or tactical experts whatever he's he's crazy he is crazy he is a loud mouth he does not know when to shut up he does not know when not to speak he does not he, he doesn't and it's not even he doesn't it's not even that he doesn't know these things he clearly doesn't care he doesn't care one bit he has his opinion and you're going to hear his opinion and i generally don't think that a team otherwise uh, that otherwise doesn't really court any kind of controversy with the exception of whenever someone gets mad about Fernando Tatis being cool, really wants, like, really should be trying to court that. You know, the, the problem with the Padres was not that their manager was too timid or, or not enough of a, a blustery guy. I mean, Jace Tingler was, was certainly not a, a red-faced uh, screamer type, but I don't get the sense that the, that, the, that the solution there is let's hand the team over to an abject lunatic. Mm. 
you know, the vibe I've always gotten from San Diego is let's hand this team over to someone who knows what they're doing specifically and particularly someone who has tactical experience, just simple managerial tactical experience that, that Jace Tangler never had. And I understand that there's probably a desire to want someone who maybe like an Alex Cora mode or mold who has an energy and also can connect to guys and is recently retired. And so they're, you know, they remember what life is like in the clubhouse, but that Ozzy Guillen doesn't really fit any of that. And I, you'd have to talk to White Sox fans to get a better sense of what he's like tactically, but I never got the sense Ozzy was a particularly great manager. I got the sense he was more just a loud mouth who just had a lot of energy and I just I, I struggle to see how that's not just a solution for the Padres right now but also a long-term solution Ozzy seems explicitly like the kind of guy who lasts two or three seasons before everyone gets so completely sick of his shit and or he says or does something ir- like indescribably stupid that he just it, he's not tenable anymore what the Padres need is is reliable I think veteran steadiness and Ozzie Guillen is definitely a veteran manager, but I mean, it's also the fact he hasn't managed in the majors since the Marlins let him go about 10 years ago. This is not a guy who's particularly plugged in with the current major league scene, and he never seemed particularly plugged in with the advancing white wave of analytics at the time either. You know, I, I think if anything, like, and I, I imagine, you know, regardless of what happens in the series, but particularly if they win it, uh, if the Astros decide to let Dusty Baker walk, I can't think of a more perfect match than him just going over to San Diego and bringing his laid-back vibes and just endless wealth of baseball knowledge to a team that really seemed like what it needed more than anything was a steady, like, stabilizing veteran influence who also could just, you know, you also didn't, who also just, you you didn't really second-guess as much. You know, and I think that was something with Tangler where, you know, I can't speak to what he was like in the clubhouse and only, only the Padres themselves really know what that was like, but he never particularly struck me as someone who had... Uh, that it didn't seem like he had that firm a grasp on on the tactics or the decision making, and I think you know for as much as you can say, oh, Dusty's too old to be around these young. I mean, he's, he's worked great with Houston, but I think he also makes sense for a team that does that does have veterans and that does just need, I think, that veteran managerial leadership and someone who just you know is not going to panic when things go wrong, is not going to you know not the Tingler did, but again, the steady hand at the tiller, I think, is what the Padres need, and Ozzy Guillen. Is just going to yank that thing all over the place and send them on a. They, yeah, maybe he leads that team to 90 wins, but I think way more likely is he leads them to like 75 wins, and he gets fired by the end of the season because he just says something just egregiously awful in the process. So, no, I, I don't think he makes sense. I have to imagine that the Padres are either doing someone a favor or just checking all the requisite boxes. I would be shocked if Ozzy Guillen ever manages in the big leagues again. Okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, King Gerpy Jr. in happier news uh, gets an ownership stake in the Seattle Mariners, John. Cool, good for Griffey. I'm, I'm, I, like, I, like, I like when teams do this. I like when, when long-time players come back and are like, I'm here to, you know, to ostensibly to make sure that this team keeps doing good things, mm-hmm. but in reality just so I can basically hang around the ballpark and get paid to do it. Which, hey, it's not that's a, bad a gig. dream job. Yeah, if you, can, if you can get that work, by all means, go get it. So, you know, good for good for Griffey, good for the Mariners, I suppose. I don't imagine he will have that much of a say in whatever is going on. I mean, that's kind of the thing, though, is we, we've never really gotten an inkling before that Griffey was either, A, all that interested in being an owner. I mean, maybe, maybe he said something in recent years and I've just totally missed it. But I, you never really got that sense that he was, you know, 
desperate to become part of the plutocrat class. Mm. And B, there was never any, I don't feel like any indication that Griffey was one of those, you know, I have a lot of ideas for how baseball should be guys. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe maybe he does and he just hasn't shared them. He's, you know, he's a certainly a public facing individual, but he's, he's not a guy who's like, you know, out in the limelight all the time. I, I, I think he values his privacy when he can get it. I mean, literally Ken Griffey Jr. But, you know, it, it is just interesting to see that because, you know, maybe Mariners fans could, could speak obviously a little better to this, but yeah, I, I guess I'm curious like what Griffey brings to the table for the Mariners beyond just a familiar smiling face and a reliable presence at, you know, uh, events at the stadium or anniversaries, just to, you know, re- a nice a nice thing to, for Mariners fans to remember. Be like, hey, here's Ken Griffey Jr. Don't don't you remember how much you love him? And everyone goes, yeah, we of course we love Ken Griffey Jr. That makes that makes what the Mariners do that much more palatable. The, the cynic in me wants to think that they're just going to throw him out there to, to report all the bad things. Like, oh yeah, we didn't actually make any trades this deadline. But if nothing else, given how bad the rest of Seattle's ownership seems to be at the whole talking to the press and fans and not saying things that they shouldn't say and or behaving like enormous jackasses. Uh, Griffey is probably a big step forward in that. In someone, I think more than anything, it's someone that Seattle can put out as the more public face of ownership, who is not Glenn Mather or a Glenn Mather type uh, flunky, and and feel at least better about that. That you know, hey, here's someone you all love, as opposed to an executive who won't shut the hell up about uh, screwing with service time. Let's focus on Ken Griffey Jr. So. I'll, I'll take the cynical route there, but I, I, it is nice, I think, to see. It's always nice when a when a fan favorite comes back to a comes back to a franchise and becomes a part of it. So that, that's a nice thing, I think, for the Mariners and Ken Griffey Jr. All right, well, John Taylor, um, the last thing we have to we have to touch on here: happier news with your Boston Red Sox just missed the World Series. We almost had uh, two worlds colliding on this very program, John. We almost had the Red Sox versus the Braves. A house divided, a podcast divided, if you will. Um, yes. But no, no, we got the. We Astros. almost had to. We almost had to make a really stupid regional bet. Mm. What would it, I would have made you if if the Braves had beaten the Red Sox in a World Series? I think I would have bet you that you have to eat Waffle House every day for two weeks straight. That's not a. That, okay, I would pray that the Red Sox lose. That's awesome. Also, you say no that now. House. I love Waffle there's no House. Waffle House. There's no Waffle House anywhere near me. Is the other problem? Mm. Is there not? You need to expand no, I mean, it to New York. New York. Yeah, New York's a little far north of the Mason Dixon. So. Okay. Well, everyone loves Waffle House. Uh, Anthony Bourdain loves Waffle yes, House. Yes, I, I also love Waffle House. This would have been a great bet for me. Any bet what is your order at Waffle eat? House? Uh, I haven't been in a while. Last time I went was in Tampa. Like four years ago okay i think i just got the basic like waffle scrambled eggs hash browns you know toast just the you just the the regular just give me what you got like give me what you got he said he's like just give me what you've got back there john taylor exactly Mm -hmm. give me what you got on the griddle i can see you doing (laughs) stuff that's the thing i don't i don't i don't know waffle house enough to have like a waffle house order but Mm. times i've been to waffle house yeah, and just have ordered the basics. I've been very happy with what showed up. So <clears throat> back when well, I was wait, a, would this, be, would this have been also every meal at Waffle House or just no, Waffle House no. once a day for two weeks? I can't be responsible for you becoming a type two diabetic within two. weeks I was gonna say like that. That's a bet that I would still take because it's still mm-hmm. delicious, but it ends with me in the ICU. <laughs> Do you remember during the sandwich wars that kid who ate like a bunch of was it Popeye sandwiches? He ate like just non-stop Popeye's chicken sandwiches and then wound up in the ICU. 
Well, now I want a Popeye's chicken sandwich, so I hope you're happy. Well, I've delicious. actually never had a Popeye's chicken sandwich. Okay, but you live in Chick-fil-A land, so... What's wrong with Chick-fil-A imagine. land? Have you well, had... nothing. I'm just saying, it, it's, it's got to be... Of course I've had Chick-fil-A. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, it's got to be a little different for y'all, because you got Chick-fil-A Did you just say like... y'all? Look at you. You pod with somebody for a couple of years, and then the, the southern dialect yeah, comes up, out a little bit. I grew up in western Maryland. I grew up in... We're not considering... The Maryland's country. not the south. No, no we're not doing south. this. Basically, it's basically Kentucky, but you know what? No, it's not. What? Basically, Kentucky. Kentucky is holler as hell. Kentucky is this weird combo of the South and the like rural Midwest. Mm. It, it's it's a weird, at least as far as I can tell from going to Louisville and driving through Kentucky, it just mm-hmm. that's the vibe it gives off is the South, but also Western Pennsylvania. It's the South adjacent, like it's not fully it's, South. It's the, it's the South, but with a little too much Ohio. Yes, very close to Ohio though. Yeah, in fact, they touch. Cincinnati and Louisville are about an hour and a half apart. Um, Weirdly enough, though, Lexington is closer to me than Atlanta. Huh. Three hours. Lexington Lexington has that decidedly southern feel because of the horse racing, though, I think. Mm. Never seen a horse race. That is a a sport I associated so closely with the South Mm. that, to me, that part of... I think Louisville has a different vibe. I know, obviously, they have the, you know, the the Kentucky Derby in Louisville, not in Lexington, but Mm -hmm. um, Louisville, I mean, when I was there, just the vibe it gave me was way more like Ohio, Western Pennsylvania than it was anywhere in the South that I've been, which granted the South is probably the, along with the mountain West, if we want to call it that the region of the U S I have the least amount of time I believe I've spent in. So, Hmm. Well, especially the deep South. I have not done the deep South with the exception of a few trips to Hartfield Jackson. Which, noted deep south hartsfield jackson um <laughs> noted uh what is it a delta hub which one is it it i mean delta yeah delta is yeah. in atlanta uh, but i've always been a southwest guy i'll pro- i'm okay. i'm weirdly loyal to southwest my dad got me on that a long time ago just an ugly plane though the solid blue oh I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's just the ugly colors but i was what i was gonna say is i think mm-hmm. Obviously, for for you guys, like a you know, for us up here in the north, like a, mm. a great chicken sandwich. We don't we don't get that much. It really was just Chick Fil A. Yeah. And the, I guess if you felt like uh, doing one of the kind of uh, major fast food chicken sandwiches, but then you know, the no Zaxby's. Just, and we no Zaxby's, no Raisin Cane, mm. no Bojangles. You know, no no nothing where chicken is really on the menu as a regular thing. It really up here is just Popeyes and KFC. And, you know, stuff like regional stuff like churches, which, you know, they do fried chicken, but it's, you know, again, it ain't, it ain't Zaxby's. And it certainly ain't the, the fried chicken places you can find in, like, Georgia or, you know, Tennessee or anywhere else. I mean, the the food, the barbecue, all of it. Like, the South does food better than anybody else in the country, that's for sure. Yes, we, we narrowly... We narrowly missed out on a World Series where I would have forced you to eat clam chowder. <laughs> I've where never you, eaten clam chowder. Clam chowder in, in Knoxville. That sounds like I'm going to get sick. Yeah, I, I wouldn't trust it. Like, you're way too far inland for clam chowder <laughs> to be something that you should feel comfortable about. Where was I recently where they had, like, just some kind of fish out? And I was like, this isn't, like, uh, the sports renaissance woman mentioned to me. She was like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, no, that's, no. What? Knoxville fish? What? No. No. I don't know. If I, like a fried white fish. I can, I can live with that. 
I'm very dubious of, of fish, John. I, I don't know. I'm I mean, very that's, that's fair. I'm very nervous about fish. I had an old roommate who used to grill it all the time on like the the stovetop, and I was just flabbergasted. Where I'm like, do you really trust yourself enough to cook your own fish? Can't do it. Can't do it. Um, <laughs> no, don't trust myself. But John, the reason I brought all of that up, and the folks now know where we stand in all the the local chicken restaurants in the in the South. Um, you your your Red Sox have some difficult decisions with Rafael Devers and Xander Bogarts. Is your expectation that both are with this organization this time next year? Yes, because I don't... For one, Bogarts has already signed long-term, so unless the Red Sox have decided that they don't like the terms of whatever is left on that contract, which Mm -hmm. after the season Bogarts has would make no sense, uh, I don't really see any reason for them to move him unless they are... I think the only reason either would move is if the Red Sox are convinced that they have a real shot at one of the Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, uh, Corey Seager groups of shortstops, like literally that that top tier. And I think you know the next the next tier down, I think would start with Javi Baez because I I, I I don't think he can be trusted uh, offensively. But regardless, I think that's the only way that would make sense. And with the idea being, you would sign someone like Correa, move Bogarts to third, and then either put Devers at first base. Or maybe you dangle one of the two of them to try to get, I'm not even sure what. I, I guess that's kind of thing. It, it's it's hard to imagine exactly. I mean, I imagine either would bring back a very good amount of anything, although Bogart's probably less so because, you know, even though he does have uh, the cost control of the extension, it's, you know, it's not a small one. So, And it's also something where, I, you know, given that he is in his late 20s now or mid to late 20s, uh, m- more likely not only real contenders are going to be in on that, you know, does that make? Would he make sense as an option for teams that do miss out on on the Correa Seager story group? Maybe, you know, maybe the Red Sox can see what interest does exist there. I think the problem is if you move either one of those guys, what are you doing to replace them? The only thing that makes sense to me is if you move one of them, it's because you're signing one of Correa story or Seager and making yourself better defensively at at least one spot and probably two depending if Bogarts moves to third I mean in, in an ideal world you sign Correa move Bogarts to third endeavors to first and that's the end of that but I don't think the Red Sox are going to do that I don't think they have the appetite for the money that any of those top three guys are going to command I don't think they have the appetite for moving yet another fan favorite young player so soon after the Mookie Betts deal and I especially think they're not going to have the, the, the desire to do that after both of them had very good seasons offensively to me, there's really no reason to move Bogarts or Devers unless you think you can improve the situation somehow. And I think it's a really narrow path to doing that. And it also relies on the Red Sox suddenly deciding they want to spend again, which I kind of have a hard time seeing that happen. So I, I think they both stick around long term. I think they both stick around for at least 2022. Long term, I'm curious. In particular, it's going to depend a lot on how Devers' defense uh, either improves or stagnates at third base. Um, and also it will, to a certain degree, depend on Tristan Casas, the Red Sox top first base prospect, and what he can do, because obviously if something happens to him or if he stalls out, the chances of Devers moving to first base and becoming the full-time first baseman go up significantly, particularly if the team just feels like his defense at third is never going to be stable enough for them to trust him there. But I think that's a, I think that's a decision you don't have to make right now, and I certainly don't see... You know, after the seasons the two of them had, Boston deciding to to make themselves weaker again, unless they're going to make unless they're going to add someone like Correa or Seager's story. And even then, I'm not a hundred percent sure that's a that kind of move is worth it, unless you know you can get something 
really good in return for either Bogarts or Devers. So I just feel like there would be too many moving pieces and too many what-ifs and theoretical realities for, for that kind of move to make sense. Okay. I have some breaking news as we wrap up tonight, John. It better not be about chicken sandwiches. No, no, no. Okay. But I think I'm absolutely getting chicken sandwiches after we're done here. I think uh, no, that's my late. That's my pre-Braves Braves game meal. Um, no. So the Padres have finalized the hiring, not of their new manager, their new pitching coach, Ruben Yelba. Formerly of the Indians, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I know I've seen a few people on Twitter who are very this is huge the pitching. Yeah, very much into the pitching and pitch design stuff. We've talked about him as a rising star in those ranks. Uh, the assistant pitching coach in Cleveland, where they have obviously done fantastic work with a ton of different pitchers. Uh, interesting to me, one of those guys is Cal Quantrill, who the Padres had and traded in the Mike Clevenger deal, and then ended up being a pretty good mid-rotation guy for Cleveland that the Padres desperately could have used last season. So I'm not surprised, given the way that, especially given the way that pitching development has seems to have kind of gone a little haywire in San Diego in the last couple of years, that they want a guy who's got a track record of being part of a great pitching develop, an organization that does great pitching development. So not surprised that that's the direction the Padres went. Uh, it'll be very interesting now to see what manager comes on with that, because if you're going to hire a guy like that coming out of a very advanced, very kind of, I, I you know, it feels like a safe assumption with Cleveland pitching with a very kind of forward-looking, um, analytics-driven, you know, all, all the all the good things, you know, a, a very forward-looking pitching group that you're going to want a manager who's going to be of a similar mindset. You know, I, I do wonder if that takes him out of the running for a more veteran guy who would almost certainly want to bring in his own coaches. And I think that's kind of the other interesting thing about this, too, is you hire a pitching coach before a manager, you're, I think it's similar to, you know, kind of similar to what the Yankees did in keeping Aaron Boone, but basically getting rid of the entirety of the staff minus Matt Blake. I, I think that makes it very clear that this is a f- very, I mean, obviously it is a front office managed search, but that this is a search for a very managerial, both a manager and a coaching staff that will listen to the front office and that can work with the front office. And it basically is the front office, but just in coaching form. Because I, th- I think you saw, it, you know, I brought Blake up, also a product of the Cleveland uh, organization in terms of pitching development. I think that probably is the way forward for those guys. The pitching is less about kind of the, the crusty old coach and more about the guys who have experience developing younger guys because I think that's just the way pitching works now is you have so many young guys who kind of need that development. And also not just the start not just starters too, but relievers and just and the sheer staggering amount of data that most teams now produce, I think it makes sense to have a guy too who has experience with that has that in his background again the question now just becomes if you are hiring a pitching coach before you hire a manager what does that say about one who you want to hire as a manager and two how much autonomy that manager is going to have over both uh big and small decisions and over the day-to-day stuff but that's obviously a question we can tackle a little a little more in depth when the Padres actually do decide to hire a manager whenever that is Whenever that is. Whenever uh, that is. It has to happen at some point unless mm-hmm. Ron Fowler has decided he wants to manage the team himself, a la Ted Turner. Yeah. Please know I would pay a substantial amount of money to watch Ron Fowler try to manage a major league team. It would be extremely funny, pretty much along the likes of what happened when Ted Turner tried to do it, and the league had to step in and say, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Fuck no. Go mm-hmm. away. But yes, very, very interested to see what comes out of, out of San Diego's search. There you go. There you go. John, we can follow you on Twitter at J.A. Taylor. Go subscribe to Fangraphs.com today if you have not already 
done so, become a member. It's great. Great work over there at Fangraphs.com. So go do that and keep up with all their great shows and writing all that good stuff. But John, thank you as always, my friend. I will talk to you next week. Correct. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.